as we pray, one of the things that came to my mind this week was um, in, a, in the same season five years ago, um, I had the privilege and the burden to be among a group of elders who um, anointed a young boy and prayed for him um, with his parents. He was just, just over a year old, was not able to walk, and he seemed relatively happy as we prayed, but there was something wrong. And he was born with holes in his heart and that were not healing, and surgery could only help somewhat, and there continued to be complication after complication after complication. Um, and so we prayed. And after praying with him personally, we continued to pray. Shortly after that, they went to the Children's Hospital ICU, and we prayed as they went there, as he went to that hospital for the final time in early December, right around now, five years ago. And we, as, as a, in the previous church I was part of, we celebrated Christmas in our church building, and while his family celebrated Christmas at the Children's Hospital. And a few days prior to that celebration, they had removed life support. It was either he was going to make it or he wouldn't. And I prayed as I went to bed on December 26th that God would work a turnaround. And I woke up on December 27th, and I got a text saying that God had decided that his time on this earth was over. And I had to wrestle with the question and answer the question, did God hear me? Did God hear the hundreds, perhaps thousands of people praying for this boy? And you, when you've had struggles and trials and griefs in your life, and they haven't been answered as you thought they would, did you ask that question, did God hear me? We who believe Jesus is the Christ. We believe and serve a God of resurrection. The God of life. He died on the cross and rose on the third day to life. And He gives life. So when we face sorrow and grief and pain, when we don't yet see resurrection... How can God offer any comfort in that? That's where we are today in this text. So would you stand with me as we read in John chapter 11, beginning in verse, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You have a seat. Remember where we are in this passage. Jesus is on his way to resurrection. And he's going to raise the man Lazarus as the sign of who he is and what he has come to do. But this text today is the picture of what needs to happen before resurrection. What this text teaches us is that the resurrection and the life enters suffering and death. And what does that mean for us who are hearing this? It means, firstly, that we need to know that God came to us. Verse 17 begins this way. It says, when Jesus came, the Word really did become flesh and dwell among us, as John 4, 1 verse 14 says. If we would believe this, this would flip our worlds right side up. All of the pieces of the puzzle of Scripture fit more securely with the reality that Jesus did come. And we should rejoice. This is to be rejoiced over that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, why isn't the whole world rejoicing that the, world became, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us? Well, here's the question. What did Jesus come into to dwell among us. First, he came in the midst of death and mourning. Continuing verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Lazarus was sick, now he's dead, and Mary and Martha had sent a message and to him, assuming he would come quick, more quickly, and Jesus had purposely delayed, as the text last week said, because he loved them. And now it's, going, now it's four going on five days since he was buried. The Jews, believed that if, the Jews believed that the spirit of a person remained around their body for three days before it departed. Not exactly sure where they got that, but that's what they believed. So if a miracle was going to happen, it should have happened before Jesus showed up. What this means is that what they knew and what they saw 
was death and death only. And they were mourning because of it. See, God comes into this world, into a broken world, with sin and the consequences of sin against God. Where once is life, death always takes over. Where once is joy, sadness and mourning creep in. And always, apart from God, we don't see the real problem. And in fact, we sometimes question God and his motivations instead. So when Jesus came, secondly, he came to disappointed trust. Look at, with me at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, if only God had intervened, if only he had stopped them from pulling the trigger, from taking that first dose of drugs, from looking at that wicked website. This is where the world is. Where was God when? But Martha doesn't finish there. That's not exactly where Martha is. And that's not where we as believers are. Though we may wrestle with doubts. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's actually a statement of confidence in Jesus. You could have really stopped this, Jesus. You have the power to. What is this then when God doesn't do what we want when we want, when we know he's totally capable of doing it? We sometimes respond in that with disappointed trust. And Martha continues in verse 22, she says, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She still believes Jesus has a close relationship with God. And as one commentator put it, they said, they kind of paraphrased what she was saying as, I know you can do anything. I don't know what you can do now, but you can do whatever you want, Lord. But her trust is still disappointed. And thirdly, he came in the midst of impersonal faith. Because after her disappointed trust, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. <laughs> this, is, this is actually way better than the he's in a better place garbage that's thrown around today. But how does Jesus mean it? Your brother will rise again. It's not just some orthodox Jewish way of comforting someone. Remember back in verse 11 of chapter 11? Of chapter 11? Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, Jesus said, but I go to awaken him. He's there for resurrection. But Martha and so many professing Christians in our day keep the work of God, keep the reality that God came to us at arm's length. Look how she responds in verse 24. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's better theology than the rest of the, most of the rest of the world has. But what's wrong here? What's wrong with that answer? It's right, but it's impersonal. She's hiding behind the right theological answer instead of appropriating the one to whom the right theology, the right answer to whom it, to whom it points, who is in flesh and blood right in front of her. We are there many times, I think, 
We say, yes, I believe what the Bible teaches. And we think and we talk a good game. Man, I am, I'm a pastor. You want to talk about a temptation for me? We think and talk a good game, but we keep Jesus at arm's length if we just stick with the right answer. If we don't welcome him in, we keep him from having a say in our lives. And we don't take the next step of living in faith. But this is why this is good news, because in the midst of impersonal faith, God came to us. And he has something better for us than to remain in death and mourning, to remain in disappointed trust and impersonal faith. The resurrection and the life enters suffering and death. What does that also mean for us? Secondly, it means we need to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You see, up to this point in the Gospel of John, he has given us picture after picture after picture of who Jesus is. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as chapter 1 says. He's the Son of Man. It's found all over the book. He's the true temple, found in chapter 2. He's the Son of God. That's all over the place. He's the Christ. That's all over the place. He's the bread of life, in chapter 6. He's the one who gives living waters, chapter 7. He's the great I Am, in chapter 8. He's the door for the sheep, and He's the good shepherd, in chapter 10. And now here, in chapter 11, we're shown another picture. Jesus doesn't just have resurrection and life. He is the resurrection and the life. So what does it mean that he is the resurrection and the life when Jesus says it? What does it mean? It means that our view of life must change. Jesus Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus doesn't get his life from somewhere. As John 5 verse 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. God doesn't get his life from anywhere else. He has it in himself. Our life comes from Him, not the other way around. So this is one reason why rejecting God and staying in our sin is so terrible. We're rejecting the source of life if we don't believe. Resurrection on the last day means nothing if we don't know and believe Jesus. But if we do believe Him, we may face physical death like Lazarus, but we know and can trust that that's not the end of the story. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, though he die, yet shall he live. Physical death has, does not have the final say. In Jesus, we have life that did not exist before. We really need to understand that what most people in this world think of as life is not really life at all. Why, why is that the case? Because any existence, any life that is apart from Jesus is actually death and never has the comma and the words following it, yet shall he live. Apart from Jesus, those words don't exist. Our view of life must change. 
because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And secondly, it means that our view of forever must change. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What does this mean? It means that when we are born again, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, when we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the resurrection and the life, we are made alive. We are spiritually resurrected. Brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's the yet shall he live part. But he goes on and he says, everyone, everyone who lives, that is, who is spiritually alive and believes, and this is a state of continued believing, whoever believes and believes in me shall what? Never die. This means that we who trust Jesus are eternally alive now. And will be eternally alive eternally. And this is very important because Scripture teaches about what is called the second death. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 4 through 5, He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And the revelation to John at the end of the Bible speaks of hell as the second death. For those who don't trust Jesus as the Christ, the second death has power over them. For we who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the resurrection and the life, we do not need to ever fear the second death. For Jesus promises that we will continue living and believing and never die because he is the resurrection and the life. Our view of forever must change. And thirdly, it means that our view of him must change. See, Jesus teaches, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he challenges Martha and he says, do you believe this? Jesus cannot be kept impersonal. He's not just there to raise Lazarus. He's not merely the one who can keep brothers from dying. He's not merely the one who can ask God from God and receive it. And he's not merely the one who knows that at the last day there will be the resurrection from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life who enters suffering and death for Lazarus, for her, for you, and for me. He is the one who in the midst of grief speaks truth that will carry Martha, that will carry you, that will carry me through grief full of hope. So may God cause our hearts to cry as Martha did, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Our view of Him must change. We must believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. 
And so this scripture, Jesus asks Martha this, but it also asks you and me, do you believe this? Do you? We can't just say, oh, that's great for Martha, but no thanks. No, do you? And do you see where Jesus brings this teaching? He brings it to Martha when almost everything in her world has gone belly up. Lazarus, the primary breadwinner in their house, got sick. Jesus didn't come on Martha's timetable. Lazarus is dead. Mary's a wreck, as we'll see in a moment. And Martha is grieving and having to be the head of the household, keeping everything together. So we must ask, why doesn't the good news of the resurrection and the life come at a better time? The resurrection and the life enters suffering and death. What precedes resurrection? Death. What precedes Lazarus coming forth? We'll look at Lord willing next week. Grief. What precedes Christ's resurrection from the dead? The cross. The ultimate form of suffering where the Son of God became sin who knew no sin and was sacrificed to take away God's wrath for sin. That's why this passage is here before Jesus raises Lazarus. The message of the gospel doesn't come when the world is fixed. but when it is in desperate need of the resurrection and the life. Why? Because God so loved the world. When the resurrection and the life enters suffering and death, it means that we need to know that God came to us. We need to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And thirdly, we need to love that Jesus loves. Martha summons Mary to Jesus. She tries to get her away for a little bit of privacy. And as we get to these verses in 28, verses 28 through 37, we need a little bit of background information. When it says in verse, um, when it says in verse, what is it? Sorry. 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, you have to understand that this is one notch below chaos. People in ancient Israel didn't go for the 21st century tame grief. They wailed. They tore garments over tragedy. They threw dust all over themselves. And if the family wasn't well known, they had a custom that they were to hire professional mourners to join them. They don't hold back the tears. They don't try to get on with life just yet. They sit in it, in the blackness of the sorrow. And so, when Jesus enters the suffering and death and begins to weep, it is a big deal. See how he loved him? The Jews say at the end of this. Here's the question. Were they right? Did they understand 
What kind of love does Jesus have when the resurrection and the life enter suffering and death? First, this is a love that weeps with those who weep. Verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She says the exact same thing that Martha did. So why doesn't Jesus take her on the great theological instruction that will lead, that will lead and shape her faith? Why doesn't he do that here? Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And verse 35, Jesus wept. There's a time for instruction. And there is a time where the presence of God is what we need. But we do need to know this, that in this moment, we can know that he is one of us. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And that's not simply poetic language to talk about sin against the holy God. But that's Emmanuel, God with us, who feels our pain, our suffering, our grief, and as God, He actually may feel it more profoundly than we do. We do not have a God who comes to us and says, you're crying about nothing. I'm about, raised, about to raise Lazarus, and here you are just blubbering all over yourselves. Your suffering isn't real. That's not the God we worship. The God we worship has a love that weeps with those who weep. A compassionate love that acknowledges that suffering and death are real. And the resurrection and the life came and entered into suffering and death. And some people don't like this picture of Jesus. And they actually have some okay motive for doing that, but it's, it's wrong. They, in an effort to uphold Jesus' divinity, his being God, minimize Jesus' tears as if emotions and emotional expression are beneath God in the flesh. Who do you think we received our ability to feel, our ability to emote, our ability to laugh, to cry, to be angry, to rejoice from? These are from God Himself. They are not inherently evil. We ought to understand how God emotionally acts and seek to follow his example. But there is more than just weeping with those who weep in this love. Secondly, this is a love that is angry about sin. Look at what, he, what it says before Jesus wept. Back in verse 33, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and troubled in his spirit. There is a lot of debate <laughs> around, surrounding the word that is translated deeply moved. What's going on here is not simple. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, never has simple reactionary emotions. 
Think about it. Jesus said that he was coming to this, this mess to what? To resurrect Lazarus, to reveal the glory of God. That's a good thing. He's not helpless, so why is he deeply moved? Why is he greatly troubled? Why does he weep? Because even though he knows he is about to bring joy and hope that this family has never dreamed of, he enters in and sees all of this mess for what it is. The reason the resurrection and the life entered suffering and death is because sin entered the world. When God sees the ravages of sin in our world, the crying, the bloodshed, the manipulation, the self-mutilation, the immorality, the lies, the viciousness of the sinful human heart and its consequences, he is justly angry. And that's how that word deeply moved is almost always translated stern or angry. And he's right to be so. This world is his. We are made in his image. We're designed to be for him, his. We're not made to die, but to live and to live with him. And when we sided with the devil against God and chose to try to live without him, great, horrible cracks shot out all over creation and shattered our mirrors that reflected the glory of God. This is a love that is angry about sin, even though he's going to fix it. And thirdly, this is a love that is committed to belief, not unbelief. When Jesus saw her weeping, verse 33, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? What's going on here? When you look at this scene, what is going on? They are mourning like those who have no hope. And the resurrection and the life is right in their midst. And they don't recognize him. Here's the deal. We, as people made in the image of God, every single one of us, we are responsible to know our Creator, our Lord, our Savior, and our King when he shows up. And we are responsible to worship him accordingly. And when we don't recognize him, it's unbelief. And apart from the saving grace of Jesus, that unbelieving failure is worthy of judgment. Even in our grieving, if we don't grieve as those who have hope, it's unbelief. And Jesus' love for them and for us is such that he weeps even over our unbelief in our grief. Even as he has compassion on us. Even as he is angry over sin. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, do not, who have no hope. Have you guys noticed, if you've been to... 
Have you noticed the difference between a funeral for a non-believer and a funeral for a believer? No matter how many good things are said about the deceased in an unbeliever's funeral, there is a chilling coldness, a numbness that can't be shook at the funeral of someone who died without Jesus. But for those who knew the resurrection and the life, and those who remain that know the resurrection and the life, there is hope. There are tears, yes, but there is hope. This is a love that is committed to belief, not unbelief. We need to love that Jesus loves, for the resurrection and the life entered suffering and death. And I'm not going to say this is, it's profound, but the day that I heard of that little boy's death, I wrote the following. As I wrestled through my grief, I said, what hope is there for that child now gone? And what hope for a heart-rended family if not for Jesus, who is both Lord of the living and conqueror of death? What hope is there for many who have prayed for healing, for a miracle, for salvation, if not Jesus, who is healer, the one who works the miracle, and who can even save the one who has not the words to speak? What hope is there now for a family whose Christmases are now struck with pangs of sorrow and tears, if not Jesus, who cares about every tear from their eyes and will one day wipe them away in joy? Let everyone keep silent before the Lord who offers real hope in a world marred with sin's viciousness. And then may the song rise to him who is worthy. The resurrection enters. The resurrection and the life enters suffering and death. And we can have hope in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you did not stay away from our suffering, but that you sent your Son to do your will. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you became as one of us. You did not ignore our suffering, but you came to promise life, to show us that you are the life you are the resurrection, that in you we can be raised to life. In one sense now, and in the fullest and completest sense, when you come back. Please, Lord, use this in our lives to shape how we go through grief and trials, and please use us to walk alongside, to sit with, to be with as you were with this family and as you are with us. Use this that we might walk with people who are suffering. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.